So today we have the privilege of spending the afternoon with founder, board member and family Sion Salvatore or Sam Senior Terracio and board member, managing director of Salter Properties, Sam Terracio. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Sam Senior, I thought we'd start with you. You immigrated to Australia from Italy or, or from Sicily in fact 70 plus years ago. Now when you reflect on the past 70 years or so, what are your proudest achievements? Obviously, uh, you know, the, the proudest achievement, um, you know, apart from family achievements, and we're talking, I assume, business achievements, uh, was um, the, the uh, start of the, the uh, Westgate Logistics and Salter uh, business activities. But one of the things that, that has really made me very proud is that, you know, when you arrive in Australia, you you tend to be in those days you were not the equal to your peers because you were a migrant um, you know we'd fought in the war Italy was fighting against Australia in the war and and so we weren't terribly well accepted quite frankly talk of discrimination today there was really quite sig significant discrimination but you know and obviously the objective was always to become the equal of your peers and that really gives you a drive to try and succeed. So you arrived, I believe, at an age around five years old or... Five and a half. Five and a half. So tell me about your, your first experiences here in Australia and, and I suppose the second part of that is when you reflect on your career today, did you ever think that what you've achieved would have been possible when you were five and a half? Well, certainly not when I was five and a half, obviously. It, um, it was a very difficult period, but um, if you can imagine 1950s when we arrived, um, very few people here that were spoke Italian and I, we arrived um, on a um, very small ship, seven and a half thousand tonne, which effectively was like a surfboard um, because if you compare the 800 passengers on that ship to 800 passengers on a cruise ship today, a cruise ship will weigh in at about a hundred thousand tonnes and this ship weighed in at seven and a half thousand tonnes. So you can understand that the high waves were not something that it coped with. So that, that, that was very difficult. Uh, the journey was very difficult. Um, a lot of people, um, or most people were actually seasick. Uh, some people died. And so as a five-year-old, um, to watch <coughs> someone be put into a Hessian bag and thrown overboard because there was no medical facilities, there was nothing on that ship. Uh, it was the way that they handled the corpse. So when I was, so that, that really, really sort of hit home hard. And of course, once you arrive in Australia, you get put into a class with 30 people, 30 kids, that uh, none of them either want to talk to you because their parents have said, don't talk to them because we fought against them in the war. And none of them anyway spoke um, Italian. And I certainly didn't speak a word of English. So that really was a very, very traumatic time and would have been for any migrant child that arrived at that time. And then I suppose from a business perspective, and we'll get into the, the Salter business shortly, but what are the, the lessons, the main key lessons that you've learnt throughout your career that you can pass on? There's no reward without risk. So for a start, you've got to start to accept that there is a risk element with everything you do. As to the level of risk that you take, that can differ from person to person but you've got to be prepared to take a risk and you've got to be prepared to back yourself to the degree that you can do things that you haven't done before. Um, I talk to a lot of people these days and you know, I, I really shudder when I hear that I say to someone, can you do this and this and this? And they say, oh, I've never done that before, so I can't do it. So it's an immediate block, which um, is not really uh, conducive to I suppose maybe developing a business in later years because you're just blocking your abilities. Believe that you can do anything because most things are fairly practical. And you've ridden the, the great highs and, and no doubt the, the suffering lows as, as well and the, and the challenges throughout. You've been a board member of the business since the beginning. How have you managed to navigate the business on, on such a stable sort of path and, and footing over the years? First of all, believing in yourself. Secondly, taking on the opportunity as it comes past. And you've got to have the ability, 
I suppose, to identify an opportunity because we all have opportunities that pass us by. And unless you identify them and grab them, that's like a ship sailing away into the, into the never, never, it just goes and never comes back. So when, when I started business, um, I was actually working for a pharmaceutical company and uh, I, they sent me to Altona where they had a um, plastics plant and uh, it was during that visit that I sort of identified uh, pretty much all the opportunities that I used and followed up to start the business uh, that is Salter today. They were leasing a warehouse, they were leasing it from the government, it was old, it was um, very badly designed. I'd never done anything like that before, but what I did realise was that if I could give them something that was worthwhile, um, they might lease my warehouse. And that really was the start of how my mind started to tick over in terms of property development. Um, so just to praise it all, because it's a very long story, the second opportunity came when I realised that they used to move the product from the plant to the warehouse. So, well, it's not, it's, it, it takes part, up part of my book, but one of the major businesses that we had that we sold, what, 10 years ago, 12 yeah. years ago, whatever it was, was uh, Westgate Logistics, which really just started off by me saying, well, you know, they need trucks here. The contractor that is doing the work is running clapped out things that are really bad news. So I convinced Turks to allow me to buy a couple of trucks and start to do their work. Uh, that grew to a 2,000 person business, uh, which was a national business when it was sold. So you've got to see the opportunity, you've got to grab it, you've got to move forward with it. And Sam, as I understand it, you joined the Salter Group business in around about 1999 or, or thereabouts, so about 22 years ago now. Tell me about the responsibility, the, the weight of responsibility that you feel in, in sort of carrying the business forward to the, the next chapter. Look, I, I, as you say, I've been in the business for uh, 22 years now and that's gone really quickly. 2005 was actually when uh, I took the, my current role, which is the role of Managing Director of the business. And, uh, you know, to be honest, that at the time felt like it was, uh, it was very early. I was only 30 years old. I just had my first, uh, my first child. And, uh, you know, so there was a lot of responsibility with that. And, uh, you know, Dad comes along and says, hey, I think it's time to step up. And uh, you sort of you know, think very carefully about that sort of thing because it is a massive responsibility. It's you know it's a family business, and uh, you know you're being asked at a very early age to do it. Now you know some might say, you know that was a, a reckless decision at the time, but I think in hindsight now, having been in the role for 16 years, I've had the benefit of maturing in that role with Dad by my side. Um, as well as a number of other very long-standing, um, very trusted people that Dad had around him over the years as he built the business as well. So I was really able to, you know, really have the training wheels on to a certain degree for the first probably four or five years until you really started to feel confident in the role. And so, you know, I've been doing it now for 16 years. I, I feel uh, very confident in what I'm doing. I feel very confident in the strategy of the business. But, you know, again, it is a growing family business and, uh, you know, in a sense I'm sort of, I have the responsibility for ensuring that the business performs for the family, both now and into the future. Um, you know, where I'm well supported now by uh, not just, you know, Dad still, you know, being uh, in the business on a daily basis as well, still a very close touch point. We talk daily, um, we talk about what's going on in the business and we talk about the strategy, but we've also formalised the business a lot. So. We now have a, you know, a, a business board which is comprised of family members and also three external independent board members. And we also have a family board structure which is part of our overall governance uh, that sits above the business board and makes decisions over a certain threshold. So it's a big responsibility but we have been very cautious in the way we've implemented the transition over the last 15 years, 16 years. And uh, you know, I've been very well supported in that. So you know, Big responsibility, but I, I, I feel like we've, we've done it in the right way. 
and take me through, if you could, um, and this is sort of going back on you know, your early days, take me through some of your earliest experiences growing up with your father and, and the family around, presumably. He was often at, at work really in the, in the trenches growing the business. What was your sort of first experience of, of growing up here in Australia, but also of, of the family business? Well, look, you, you hear a lot of stories of um, families of you know, you know, who've got a very entrepreneurial uh, figurehead and founder, and you know, you hear stories are, that you know, I've never saw my father. He was always out working, and you know, he was never really entrenched in the family. He was all always entrenched in the business. And I think what I was very lucky, and myself and my brother and my sister have been very lucky with, is that Dad, yes, he was very entrenched in the business, but he absorbed us. In that, so I spent a lot of time on the weekends, in particular, um, going out with Dad to have a look at our sites. Um, you know, back then you actually used to get out and work on sites. You'd be on the excavators or on the tractors. He's driving an excavator yeah. at about on four the, years of age. On the graders, and you, you couldn't do that nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you, you'd be uh, the OH&S <laughs> rules would, uh, would would wouldn't like a five-year-old driving around in a in a in a in a grader, but. That's what we used to do. I used to go with to dad with site to dad uh, to site with dad at the time. Probably made a mischief of myself, but it was a really great introduction to you know what what we've done um, as a family um, you know since since inception. So yeah, they're one of my really I think fond memories. I don't ever feel like the business took precedence over family because I think we dad was able to sort of merge the the two things together quite seamlessly. And give us an insight, if you could, into the business today in terms of the key personnel that are involved and then the key business lines or divisions. Yeah, so like I said earlier, we have a very strong governance structure with the family board and then the business board. Um, we have Dad still um, in the business as the founding director. You know, he has the advantage of being able to sort of pick and choose what, what he wants to get involved in. And, you, you know, there are certain aspects of this business which I think he brings a huge amount of value to and you know wants to remain involved as, as you mentioned particularly in the industrial side you know with the background with logistics it's something that you know you have a real passion uh, with, uh, passion for and so you're heavily involved um, but then as the business has grown we've had to really develop a, a robust uh, management structure family businesses have to recognize that there comes a point in time where you can't just rely on on family and the small amount of sort of senior people that you might have uh, around you as you grow a business from you know something new to something something substantial and then you know and then keep going from there. So we have a, a senior leadership team um, and then we have a, an operations team and basically um, what they run is the key components of our business is our land banking. Uh, so we've always been and we I think we get to this later on. Uh, we'll have a chat about our strategy, but you know, a key part of the business has always been identifying, you know, prime pieces of land and, and land banking them so that we're ready to develop them at the right time. So that's the next part of our business. We have our development management and project management, effectively our, our delivery team. And then from there it flows into our asset management team. And then surrounding all of that, we have all of the usual, um, you know, HR and finance, uh, IT, all, all of that. So, you know, pretty pretty, uh, I guess, simple business structure, um, but we've certainly grown in the last 12 months. We've actually put on uh, 20, 20 new roles, which is about a 30% increase in our, in our headcount in the office here. So considering what we've been through over the last couple of years, and it's reflective of the pipeline that we've got that we've had to, had to resource up in the way that we have. At this point, I should also mention that there are three other family members involved, being Lisa, David and Christine. One in particular that I, I wanted to ask you about is, is Lisa. She rejoined the business as I understand it. Perhaps take me through Lisa's role within the Salter Group business today. Yeah, so she's um, an investment director within our Salter Capital business. So Salter Capital is run by my brother David, who's the CEO of Salter Capital. Salter Capital started out essentially as a, a platform for investing in um, arm's length um, opportunities that were related to our core business. So a lot of property technology, for example, and uh, the, the opportunities we were looking at were those where we could add value to the investee company and they could add value to us. It's moved well beyond that now and uh, we're a lot broader in our, in our assessment of different opportunities. It's a little bit like a small 
family office or, or the start of a, a family office and a diversification strategy for the business. So Lisa, who's a qualified um, uh, property lawyer, um, and that's been her background. So after she left us, she became a, a property lawyer and she spent many years in that, in that area building up a substantial business in her own right with her husband. And uh, since she's come back, she's basically assisting my brother in assessment of opportunities within the Salter Capital uh, business. Sam Senior, one thing that I did want to ask you is there's obviously a lot of disputes in family businesses. You had the foresight to hand the reins of managing director over to Sam in 2005, I think he said. What, what sort of prompted that decision? Because you don't often hear of family businesses of this scale doing that. Often there's a, you know, legal disputes that are involved and, and that sort of thing. How, what, what, what guided that decision? Oh, well, look, I, I suppose the, the decision to, to move away from the business early enough was that, in my view, I really needed to be around. I mean, I don't have any intention of, dis of, of um, retiring. I'm 77 and I hope to keep going for a few more years. But at a point in time when you've still got the energy and the patience and the resilience to be able to mentor and, and help your family, your, my child who is now running the business and, and um, is very modest in, in the way that he, he's joined the business and what he'd done beforehand. So there was a level of experience already there. Um, you know, he'd been in agency, um, he'd been working with the business for a number of years, he'd been out on site since he was about four. So um, while 30 was a young age, it was certainly the right age in my view because I've now been around together with him for the whole journey and I'm still here. So um, you know, I think it's worked very well for us. And what about managing the broader family dynamic of having David and Sam and Lisa involved? How, how have you managed to ensure that everybody's sort of comfortable having a role in the business without there being you know, too much crossover or, or too many arguments? Well, I think, um, I think the main thing is to instill in your family members that they are family members, but they have to find their own way. And there isn't an as of right because you're born into that. My kids, in, in all of them, have no animosity or jealousy about what one person is doing is against another. It is a fortunate position for me as a parent because, as you know, there are many, many disjointed families out there that are at each other. And um, I suppose three years ago, we made the move to um, appoint PwC to properly structure the plan going forward as to how the family would function and how the business would function. Uh, we're all signatories. There's a, a thing up there that tells you what we do. And I don't think we've had any significant, I suppose, problems within the family as a result of, of either the business or the finances or anything else. And the three of them are and do act independently in their own right and don't look to um, to lean on anybody's shoulder in the things that they do. And I think that's a very unusual set of circumstances. One more before we sort of move on to a different topic that I wanted to ask about is you mentioned how different Australia was in the 1950s and, and 60s and 70s and how difficult and challenging it was for, for migrants back then. Do you, do you see more of an opportunity for migrants today or do you still see that there's quite a lot of challenges for them to overcome? Look, it's a different Australia today. When we came out, um, yeah, there was a, a level of resentment towards migrants and it was a difficult uh, set of circumstances in terms of the language and, and the help the government was giving because there was, wasn't much help at all. But the country was a new country and there was enormous opportunities. And many migrants that have really uh, done very well in this country did so because of the skill base that they had and the fact that the country needed that skill base. And, uh, and they've evolved and grown with, uh, with the way that Australia has grown. But the work ethic of those migrants, that first tranche of migrants that came out post-war was enormous because they, they'd sort of experienced the devastation of war, the lack of uh, commodities in Sicily in particular, you couldn't buy food, you, you know, it was just devastated. And so you come out already with a work ethic that is very, very strong happy to work as many hours as you need to work to achieve the objective. You know, that makes it a bit more difficult. And having said that, 
it's a, a far more mature country. So as a country matures, yes, there are opportunities that are created which are different, but I suppose the competition is probably a little bit stronger now than, uh, than it would have been in those days where, you know, if you had a skill, you had a job, and there were plenty of those jobs around and plenty of opportunities to expand that business. So it's, it's just a different set of circumstances at the moment. So Sam, you took over uh, the business in, in the year 2005 and you were, you were age 30. What are the immediate opportunities that stood out to you and, and how have you gone about sort of building the business up and creating different business lines over the past 15 or 16 years that you've been in charge? Look, I think one of the things that, um, that Dad probably recognised at the time was, you know, we, we talk about his um, upbringing and his uh, evolution as an entrepreneur and building the business. You know, on the smell of an oily rag with a lot of gut feel and grit and determination. And I don't think we've lost any of that. But at the same time, I came through a completely different path, clearly. Okay, you know, I, I came up uh, working in the business side by side with Dad, learning from someone who knew what he was doing, whereas he was learning on the job, if you like. I had a formal education, you know, gone through school and university and done the formal qualifications, you know, gone and done the work experience. And I think um, what Dad probably recognised at the time was that the business needed to be probably more, more professionalism in terms of the way some of the systems, procedures, the technical aspects of the way the business are run, um, that, that needed to be looked at. So we didn't want to lose the entrepreneurial, um, you know, flair that I suppose uh, Dad had and the business had in terms of finding opportunities. But the way in which they're implemented, in the way in which they they're run and managed, I think needed needed uh, needed to be looked at. And I think Dad recognised that at the time. And you know, I come through uh, university, you know, accounting and finance background, worked in agency. Uh, it probably made sense at the time just for me to sort of start bringing in some of those. I guess more disciplined approaches to the way in which the business was run and so I found a lot of opportunity in that and I suppose since that time in 2005 we've just gradually kept structuring the business so that could uh, you know the structure of the business and the way it's resourced and the way it's run keeps pace with uh, our pipeline. I think it's a very um, mature thing to, to do you know often you see founders of businesses who probably take it or wait too long to actually bring that formality to the way the business is run. And I think it's just something you, you obviously recognised um, early in the piece that that needed to happen. And we've seen examples of businesses of this scale go and list on the stock exchange, but you guys obviously prefer to keep it as a privately run family business. Yeah. Why is that? What are the, the benefits of that as you see it? Yeah, look, I mean, listing brings with it a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits, mostly access to capital. But if you look at our business, uh, it is a business that is quite diversified. So it's very hard to pigeonhole us into a particular uh, category. A lot of listed businesses, you need to be in, in the office sector or you need to be a REIT or you need to be a fund manager. You know, there's, there's not too many examples where there are businesses that are, are diversified as ours uh, in terms of the number of sectors we're in and in terms of the fact that you know, we have a significant portfolio of properties that we manage, which is very much REIT-like, um, but we're also very entrepreneurial in our approach to development. And that includes holding very large land banks, which is not well understood in the listed market. The other thing is the decision-making. Um, you know, as a private business, uh, you know, we, we, we own every single one of our decisions and we're accountable to ourselves. We're not accountable to other shareholders. It's not that we would necessarily find it difficult being accountable to other shareholders. We just think it would be very difficult for shareholders who are not working in the business to completely understand some of the decisions we're making at times. Because property is one of those businesses that has its, uh, has its risks. We like to think we manage the risks really, really well. We believe we do. But shareholders in a business like ours, I think, would struggle to really comprehend uh, what we're doing. So it does suit us to, to stay private. That means that you know, we need to um, manage our capital position really carefully because we're running predominantly with our own, uh, with our own capital and from time to time we use uh, joint venture capital um, as well. Sam Senior, I wanted to ask you in terms of the growth of the, the Salter business, particularly in the, say, the 1980s, 
there was a lot of business people, as you're aware, that uh, that had you know big dreams, big ambitions here in Australia, particularly in in Perth and the Gold Coast. How how did you manage to ensure the business was stable throughout that period, and you didn't get carried away in in sort of overcapitalising on projects or getting carried away on expanding into Sydney or overseas? Um, well, well, I suppose the. Um at, at that time, the, the business didn't have the broad vision <clears throat> and exposure that we have at the moment where we're in most of the property sectors. But if, if you think about it, um, we were probably the first to do um, industrial parks uh, that were fully managed before Goodman even started. And, and the way that that really was, um, was, was uh, working was that um, because of the growth of Westgate, which was a, a strong and very large logistics business and it was national, we were having a lot of exposure to the users of logistics facilities. The companies that we were dealing with were companies like Coles and uh, in those days Herxt, which was a, a multinational global uh, huge business. And so they had a requirement. We decided that we do one thing, we'd go to them and say, this is a one-stop shop. You know, we'll buy land or we've got land, we'll build a warehouse for you, we'll run it for you, um, and you don't have to worry about a thing. And when you need to expand, we'll expand. And if it means a new building, we'll build a new building. And so that really was the, the way that the business really flourished in, those, in that period, um, you know, we could read what our customers needed. A, a typical example is Coles were working out of one of our warehouses. We were advising them on a number of occasions that the warehouse was getting tight and it couldn't operate. But executives being executives, busy every day, just weren't worried about the whole thing. So, and going back quite a few years then, I spec'd a warehouse that was 40,000 square metres massive warehouse, knowing full well what the Coles requirement was, right? We got about halfway through it and I got this sheepish phone call from Coles saying, oh, by the way, um, what, what are you doing with that warehouse? Obviously said I had a number of interested parties. No negotiation on rent. How much is it that you want? Yes, I think we'll take it. Now, if you go back to, if it was a listed company, that would be fairly difficult to do. That was a punt. But punt that was, uh, you know, well understood. And so the, the property business grew and the logistics business grew. Once we sold that, the, that logistics business, we did find that it was a bit of a struggle in industrial. And we started to expand and we had land banks that were very significant land banks that had been purchased over a period of years. So we went into uh, residential, we went into commercial, and so now the business is very broad-based, far more complicated than it was in my day. Um, but I think we've got the management and the strength in our balance sheet now to, uh, to continue in the way we're going. And um, you know, we've got some very, very big projects in front of us that are right across the spectrum of property. And when you look at the current market today, can you believe the prices that some developers listed or, or private pay for industrial assets, particularly in the past, you know, 36 or 48, 48 months, compared to you know what you were you were paying for sites and building industrial and logistics assets on several years ago? Really, um, when when I started, industrial was the down and dirty side of property, and the the cost of real estate wasn't great at the time. And I would never, ever have imagined in my wildest dreams that the uh, industrial market would go from what used to be a cap rate of between 8 and 10% to a cap rate of under 4%. Unbelievable. But it's a journey that, 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 that uh, you go through and you see it all happening. Um, I mean, we sold a lot of our industrial assets when we needed to, to sort of cash up because as a private company, We've had to build a, a financial base that was significant. Uh, and, you know, no, I'd never have thought that it would go the way that it's gone, quite frankly. 
Let's talk about the current market, Sam. Where are you seeing, or which sectors of the market are you seeing the greatest opportunity in, and are there any sectors of the market that you're avoiding? Well, I think we, um, we're very fortunate at the moment to be in two of the sectors that I think are really performing the best or have uh, the most focus on them from a lot of the capital that's seeking a home in property. That being the sector we've just spoken about, the industrial sector, which everyone now calls the logistics sector. It's a bit more, a bit more sexy. Um, but uh, look, we, we have a, a huge pipeline uh, in the logistics sector, um, you know, land that we have identified 15, 20 years ago that you know, we, we, we could see was going to become prime industrial land. So that's one of the things that we do as a private company. We do look a long way out and you know, sort of adds to the answer about you know, why do we not list? It's very hard to be buying land you know, 10, 15 or 20 years out if you're a public company. Uh, but certainly that's an area that um, you know, we've always sort of been pretty good at is, that, is identifying the right expansion areas and finding the right pieces of land. So we're very well placed uh, on the, in the logistics sector and it's, it, as, as we've just touched on, it's a very hot market. The other sector is build to rent. You know, there's a lot of talk about build to rent now. There's a lot of new projects being announced, a lot of new players, a lot of capital coming to the build to rent sector. It's actually something we've been looking at for the past five years and we, we've been intending to, uh, or we've been planning to enter the sector for the last five years. So we've got a pretty big pipeline of build to rent assets with about three and a half thousand apartments in our build to rent pipeline uh, and we'll start construction on our first uh, first asset um, early next year. So I think they're the two sectors that are, I think at the moment have the most, most focus on them. There's been a lot of disruption obviously in the market through COVID um, and that's why there's been this huge interest in the logistics sector because we've just seen that any business that's involved in the procurement and, and, and distribution of goods. So really that stretches from you know, being a logistics company right through to you know, retailers and you know, they're just, their demand for, for that sector is, has really skyrocketed and hence why that sector's done so well. You know, other sectors uh, that are, you know, are still sort of, if you like, got question marks against them. You know, a lot of people ask me about the office sector and what's the future of office. And I think through the pandemic, uh, what we've discovered, I think, is a new appreciation for what the office actually adds. And we're certainly seeing that in the inquiry levels that we're getting. So if you go back 12 or 18 months, everyone's sort of suggesting that office may be dead or, you know, certainly its prospects were going to be severely diminished. We're certainly not seeing that. We're, we're seeing businesses really rethink the way they use their office space the importance that they're placing in the office as a, a place for collaboration and creativity intermingled with a lot more flexibility around coming in and out of the office. So we're actually now coming out of COVID um, quite positive about the, the office sector, whereas, you know, go back 12 or 18 months, we were probably thinking, you know, where is, um, where is this going to head? And equally, I think, and we're not as, we don't have as much exposure to retail. We, we only have a small exposure to retail assets, but I think, um, COVID has brought forward the understanding around how retail and online can intermingle and how one needs the other. I don't think the solution is all, all online or all bricks and mortar. I think very much both sectors are necessary. Um, and I think we've just seen that in the, in the rebound with you know, people coming back into shopping centres and you know, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an outing, it's, you know, it's, a, it's entertainment, it's enjoyment. Um, and people, you know, do like to touch and feel what they're buying, but, you know, they've also got the online option. So, you know, I think COVID, there's still a lot of kind of question marks to, to get the answers to. Um, and uh, I think we'll see in the next 12 months just how some of those sectors really start to settle post-COVID. And you mentioned the build to rent sector there. I just want to unpack that for a minute. So you've got about 3,000 apartments, I think yeah, you said, 3,500 yeah. 3 in the pipeline. There's been some developers who swore they would never get involved in it. And 12 months later, they're you know, quite heavily involved in it. Other developers sort of have always you know, looked at the sector, always been intrigued by it. How have Salter Group made it work without giving too much yeah. away? But Oh, look, I, I don't think it's, it, there's a particular magic to it. I think if you go back a couple of years ago, you know, your, your returns that you would generate out of the residential sector into, from an income point of view, we all know where residential returns sit. You know, you're sort of in that 4 to 5% gross return 
which a net return, you know, you take off 30% of that return and that's, that's where you end up. And then you compared that to where, you know, logistics assets were at or where an office asset was at. And there's quite a significant difference in the, in the um, uh, I guess, income return that you could earn out of a project. We could see that there was going to be a bit of a convergence in, in returns across those asset classes, and that's exactly what's happened. And in fact, if you look at, you know, we were just talking about industrial assets being sub 4% yield. Well, you know, actually there's a better yield out of build to rent at the moment. So I think a lot of the market has moved that direction uh, for that reason. The relative returns out of uh, build to rent compared to other asset classes um, are now looking more favourable. Um, for us though, it's also about um, diversification of our income streams. You know, we have a lot of exposure to office and industrial. And you know, part of the reason why residential returns historically have always been lower than other asset classes is because actually it's a lower risk asset class. So you know, risk return. Um, you know, what are you prepared to accept for a lower risk? And so that's why we've been on it for the last five years. We, we've sort of been planning our build-to-rent pipeline. It's not a new thing that we've done because of COVID. It's actually something we were doing well prior to COVID. Uh, and we just see that it adds stability into our overall um, investment holdings. Um, you know, you do have big exposures in um, industrial and, and, and office. Um, it's a little bit like what retail used to be and I think will, will again be considered where you've got a larger number of smaller, smaller tenants. Your vacancies are not likely to be as high as if you, you, know, you lose a significant tenant from a large industrial building, you have a big hole in your, in your cash flow. So I think, I think the market's starting to understand and recognise the advantages of build to rent. And I think finally, um, there's capital out there that actually understands build to rent. There's been a lot of work done um, in Australia around understanding the sector. And I think um, both equity capital and debt capital is starting to understand the sector a lot better and hence why there's a lot more investment into it. And regardless of investing in different asset classes or, or sectors, I'm interested to get a gauge on the fundamentals that you look at as a team. What are the, the core metrics that you analyse? Look, I think one of the strengths of this um, business uh, over the last multiple decades has been our willingness to actually try to um, read the trends and position ourselves with land banks that um, we know will ultimately be sort of best of breed land banks for the particular sector. So that's something that I think that um, you know, we've always tried to do um, really well. We've got, we're very patient, um, we've, we're able to support buying and, and holding land because we've got our investment portfolio that supports us doing that. But essentially, you know, it's, it's no different to the uh, you know, age old thing uh, that location, location, location is property, in property is the most important um, component. And, um, you know, we just try to get in front of the game because it's very hard to buy prime locations once everyone knows that the location is prime. So what we try to do is figure out what's going to become prime well before it does. And that's something that I think, you know, fortunately we've been successful in doing over the last you know, 50 years. We've, you know, we've been in business. Uh, I've been in it for 22, but it's 50 all up, a bit more than 50 now. And that's definitely a strategy that we've always employed. Um, and it's been, it's probably, it's been our most successful, you know, strategy broadly since we started. Now, Sam Senior, it would seem that a common theme throughout your career is, is your sort of obsession on customer service and delivering a great customer experience. Where did that come from and, and how important has it been through the business's journey in, in terms of the success of the business? Well, um, I suppose I'll give you a, a, a two or three word answer that, to that, but I can then qualify it a little bit further. No customers, no business. So it is very, very important to understand your customers and, um, and to service them in the way that the representation has been made. And um, my very early career was in sales, pretty much. My first job was with um, the Meyer Emporium as a sales cadet in their uh, occasional furniture. My second job was with a company called um, Miles Laboratories, which was a um, over-the-counter um, a pharmaceutical company made things like Alka Seltzer that used to be quite the the rage at the time for people that had drunk too much. 
before that, my second job, that was my third job. My second job was with a company called Style Girl Hosiery, which was uh, the era when the ladies started to wear uh, pantyhose and I was involved in the, in the sales of, of, of that sort of product. So they were all quite diverse. Then I went into the pharmaceutical area, which was Miles Laboratories, and then it was uh, Herxt, which was also a pharmaceutical company and an industrial uh, company producing plastics. So most of my early days were spent in selling and, um, and doing courses about how to sell and, and how to, uh, you know, win friends and all the sort of things that used to happen with Dale Carnegie courses. And so you really do get an understanding of where the important element is and that important element is you, you, you've got to know how to present yourself, you've got to know how to sell, you, you've got to have an understanding or effectively an empathy to understand people's body language and I mean there is nothing worse than a salesman who is like a record and you can't shut him up which means that the, the person he's talking to doesn't get a word in edgeways. So it's that sort of ability to sort of have people come into the conversation and then talk back to them that creates that relationship and that bond in, 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 the, um, in the interview or in, in the discussion that you're having. And so that's just something that you acquire over a period of time and very, very important. Um, that's how you keep customers and that's how you make customers and that's how you grow businesses. And one of the, the things that I found most fascinating in reading your biography was, and you've mentioned it today as well, that you've always taken calculated risks. Although when you're in your mid or late 20s, you were buying essentially swampland and, and then building on it. Other people would say that is a very risky sort of venture. What made it less risky in, in your eyes? What, what did you see in that potential that others didn't see? Well, first of all, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't buy anything else. That, that was, you know, without a doubt, uh, the, the main motivator. And, and, and so what do you do with trying to start a business? Um, the business that I wanted to start was to build a warehouse because I'd had that exposure at, at Herxt. And my father had a, um, a, a small um, um, garden supply business that, that was worked out of the back of our house in Altona where we lived but then he decided to move it out and buy an, a piece of land in Williamstown to bought I think it was a quarter acre block to sort of expand his little business. I figured that I should buy everything around it. That was the swamp land that I was buying in case he had to increase his business. Um, and of course having had that piece of land which um, it was a 1920s subdivision that had no roads, no sewage, no storm water. It was just <laughs> land. And a lot of the land that we bought was very, very cheap because the people that owned it were, were you know, people that had inherited the thing over generations. And it really wasn't worth anything. And, and so when I bought that, because of my father's business, he had a lot of contacts with contractors because he was selling sand and screening to people who were doing construction work and road works, um, that the idea came that I, if I buy it, I can get it filled fairly cheaply and, you know, the value of it can be re-rated once you've got it filled and looking pretty good. And so that's, that's the, the story of buying the swamp land, which was actually the, the start of the, the construction business. And that's where we built our first warehouse. Just on the, so you had a, a development business and a construction business, but over time and accelerated under Sam's leadership has been this sort of diversification that's always underlaid the, or underpinned the company in, in terms of whether it's commercial assets, industrial assets, residential development assets. What's driven your thinking in that regard? Because it's quite unique. Often you'll have developers that just do industrial or that just do high-rise residential, but you were sort of ahead of the times in, in looking at you know, different assets. Well, as you would know, you know, property's uh, cyclical, goes in cycles, you know, residential is going, but industrial isn't, um, you know, commercial is going. So we're very, very fortunate that we don't have one sector and if that slows down, then we slow down and we're not in anything else. Now, we, we can move and we still do now move from one part to another. So we'll go from commercial gets a little bit tight, residential's firing, or uh, 
you know, uh, industrial is firing. And so the benefit of being in all of the sectors is that it gives us that ability. So we never have people sitting around doing nothing because we've got nothing to do. And I think that's a mainstay, it's been a mainstay of the business. It requires, you know, um, a lot more work and it requires you know, Sam and his team to be able to go across all of the sectors. But I think that is a very strong position that we have in being able to do that. I think you'd agree. And Sam, in terms of leadership qualities and, and corporate culture, how have you managed to adapt that or, or at least accelerate that over the, the past 16 years? Yeah, well, I think um, as businesses grow, you've really got to be very mindful of your approach to leadership because your role changes. You know, you, back when I got into this role, into the managing director's role, we were probably a, a team of 10 or 15 people. So the way you interact with your team, um, what your actual role is in that function um, changes as you grow into a much bigger business with more parts to your business and more people in your business and your actual role changes too. You, you know, the title hasn't, but hasn't changed, but your actual function is very different. And I think one of the big things that changes as you grow is the way in which you have to grow into leading a team because you move from being very hands-on in a lot of things to sort of gradually becoming more and more hands-off in terms of the day-to-day -day tasks that you might carry out. And that's obviously quite logical because as the business grows, you bring more people on and you sort of, you know, you're delegating those roles out to, to others to, to carry out. So it's really critical to adapt your leadership skills to be one of, um, you, know, you know, a motivator and a confidant and, uh, you know, an educator. And, uh, but also importantly, one of the things I found is really understanding that some of the people we're now bringing on have got far more experience than I've got in some of the things that we do. And so there's a huge amount of learning from them as well in reverse. So I think that's what happens as you, as you grow into a, you know, into a larger business and your leadership skills change. It's about a two-way sharing of knowledge and information and skill sets um, that you've got to learn to do. And I think you know, the most effective leaders are the ones that do that. They sort of understand that actually, whilst you might be the leader of the business or the, the CEO or the managing director of a business, you're probably not the most experienced person in everything that the business does. And it's impossible for anyone to, to do that, actually, particularly as you diversify like we have. So I think that's one of the things I've learned, just the value of bringing really good, passionate people in, uh, giving them enough um, scope to carry out their role and come forward with suggestions about how they can add value to the business um, and giving them, I, I suppose, the opportunity to do so in a way that they feel safe to do so. Uh, and then working with it. So I think, I think that's the biggest change for me, uh, you know, in the 16 years since I took on the role. And vice versa, what, what, do you, what do you think are the qualities that attract, I think you said you've added about 20 staff this year alone to the, to the business or over the past 18 months. What are the qualities that, that attract candidates to the, to the business, whether at the top end in a management perspective or, or just starting out? Uh, look, I think, I think we're, um, fortunate to be in a way a little bit of a niche business in a sense in that we're still a family run business we still have a lot of family values and the, the, the family value statement which is up on the wall here is something that we try to live by and we try to sort of permeate throughout the business so we've very much got that we've still very much got that entrepreneurial um, mindset about us in terms of the things that we're doing but at the same time, we've grown to be of a scale that, you know, is of a sort of a small institutional nature. Uh, and the way in which we, our decision-making processes, therefore reflect that entrepreneurial business with a bit of structure, but with the sort of the balance sheet and the kind of the investment ability of, of a small uh, institution. So we've been able to bring on a number of people who've come out of larger businesses who've, you know, just, you know, I suppose got to a certain degree fed up with the red tape that exists in some of these big businesses. We still make very significant decisions in days. You know, we'll, we'll make large acquisition decisions because myself and my father and, and our board can make uh, really rapid decisions. But you know, as I said, we've still got that, um, that, that family flavour to us and we like to think that that's, you know, we're trying to find that balance between being a family run business, entrepreneurial, but structured, you know, with plenty of investment capacity. And I think that puts us into a, 
a niche that um, there's not too many that fit into that. Now, the Salter Group business has been involved in many landmark projects right across Melbourne for, for decades now. One in particular would seem to me that put the business on the map from a general public sort of perspective was 150 Clarendon Street. Reflecting on either projects you've done or projects you've got in the pipeline, walk me through some of the, some of the ones that really stand out and, and where you see the business sort of going in the next five or ten years. I think where we've been... Um really successful is in our large precinct style projects. So 150 was a unique project, a unique site, a unique product, something that can't be replicated and it's been a fantastic uh, project for our overall brand reputation in that high-end residential market. But probably the things we do best is where we're able to buy very significant land banks as, we have, as we've been talking about uh, and create a whole precinct. So Victoria Gardens in Richmond would be a project that I think a lot of people uh, know of. Um, not not everyone will know that it's a Salter project, but we, we were able to aggregate almost 35 acres of land in that location, uh, and it's now evolved into a very significant mixed-use project you know, with office, retail, um, residential. Uh, it's a location for a significant pipeline of our future build-to-rent residential as well over the next four to five years. So I think that was, that's been a really important project in our, in our history. I think if you look at uh, some of the things that we've got that are currently underway, um, our Nexus corporate park out in Mulgrave, where we currently have 60,000 metres of office space that's already been constructed and we've got roughly another 60,000 square metres of office space left to go. But it's another really good example of just how where you actually can control a whole precinct and you can gradually deliver buildings over time, that each time you do the next building, you improve on the previous one. Uh, you're able to add value across the estate in terms of the types of amenity that you're, you're, um, you're, you're providing to your clients. And if you look at Nexus now, you know, it's very much a garden environment. You know, we have uh, uh, you know, basketball um, court on the roof of one of the buildings, we have a tennis court on the roof of another. We've just put in a running track and an outdoor gymnasium. Uh, plus all of the other amenity that you can have you know, in a precinct style development. And then um, from an industrial point of view, uh, our Dandenong South uh, project is obviously another very important project um, in, our, in our current and future pipeline, um, where we have 185 hectares of land out in Dandenong South. Um, you know, that's land actually that we purchased 15 years ago. Um, it was zoned rural at the time, so we've gone through a whole rezoning process um, we've put the infrastructure in and now it's also the location for the uh, future Dandenong South intermodal terminal. Um, and it, but again, it's a precinct. Um, we've put all the roads in, you know, we've got multiple buildings uh, that are going up on that estate. We control the landscaping, we control the design of the roads, we control the parklets, we control the amenity. And I think that's where I think we do our best work uh, is in long-term master plan precinct style development and there's a number of you know a number of examples of that in our history that uh, that we've been very successful on. Sam Senior just in in closing out or coming to the con conclusion of our discussion based on your career and, and reflecting on all the experiences that you've had is there anything that you would have done differently? Quite frankly I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think I've had a, a pretty charmed uh, business life to the degree that things all went very, very smoothly uh, right from day one. But I think one of the real contributors was the, the start of it all, which really introduced me to multinationals. And, um, you know, uh, I make mention of the GFC that we went through some time ago, where uh, all of our buildings were leased to blue chip, or pretty much all of them, I mean, not, not in total. Um, to uh, multinational businesses and large businesses like Coles, which has created the stability that we've needed all the way through. Um, would I do it any different? Maybe I wouldn't sell my industrial assets as early as I did <laughs> and wait for the 3%. But um, apart from that, I, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I've been pretty charmed in, in, in how the way the, the business has evolved. And with the kids now coming in, it's sort of just continuing to to sort of improve and, and grow. So, and no, no regrets coming to Australia, quite frankly, other than the 
first day I went to school. <laughs> it was a bit what, difficult. <laughs> what uh, what keeps you you busy and active today? Obviously, the, the team tell me that you're a regular presence here in the office. You're in at least a couple of days per week. You've got the olive grove down on the peninsula. What 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 are you most passionate about today? Oh, look, I think I still have a very strong passion for the business. I mean, old habits that very hard to sort of get rid of, and I do come in and and. Um, but I don't get involved in in day-to-day -day management uh, to a degree. I mean, occasionally I sort of cross the line, but not not often. But certainly in a directional sense, you know, I have my say at the board. I, I believe that you've got to run a board, you've got to run it in the right way, rather than you know know that you may have the capacity to to uh, change the way the board is thinking. It's it's uh, it's got to be worked in in the right way. Sam, in a, a few, just to close out our, our discussion from your perspective, one that I wanted to ask you about, one of the trends that we saw last year was the big debates that went on between landlords and some of the national retail groups arguing over, over new models. Do you have a view on that at all? I'd like to end with a tricky one. <laughs> um, look, last year was unprecedented. 2020 um, was a year that no one predicted and I suppose if I'm realistically sitting on both sides of the fence, I can understand that you know retailers who say, well, I'm forced to close my shop and so therefore I shouldn't pay rent, I can understand to a certain degree where they're coming from. However, I think that a lot of those retailers were able to pivot their businesses in different ways and online was a big part of their solution. Click and collect was a big part of their solution. A property owner, whose business essentially is renting space in return for rent, can't necessarily pivot. I mean, we couldn't take that space because it wasn't used by the retailer and use it for another, put it to another use. Because the retailer was still occupying it, their doors might not have been open. So I think that there was a lot of sympathy, quite rightly, for the retail um, sector. But I don't know that, or I don't necessarily agree that the measures that were put in place were entirely balanced in terms of thinking about who couldn't who couldn't pivot their businesses in a way that would protect their their well-being of their business and i think there were some examples where you know there were you know some retailers who actually became more successful um, because they were able to pivot successfully and you know maybe their argument would be well you as a property business well why didn't you pivot well okay how do we do that you know you, you know we've leased you the space um we can't pick it up and move it to another location or we, you know we can't put another tenant in it while you're occupying it so look it was a it was a pretty difficult time um i think you know if if you had your time again uh some of these uh, rules need to be a bit more nuanced i mean we were we were for, for customers that we knew had no other resources, you know, you know, a lot of the smaller retail businesses, and they had no revenue stream, we were first on the phone to actually say to them, look, you know, let's let's figure something out because we know that you can't, you, it's not sustainable to continue to pay pay rent or full rent. But on the flip side, there are a lot of others who had the capacity um, and and also had the ability to pivot, who I think took advantage. Um, so I think next time around, if, if hopefully there isn't a next time around, but um, you know, if something like this were to happen again, I think the key is to, to make sure that the relative interests are properly considered and the solution is properly balanced. Because I think in the rush to do things, I'm not so sure that the balance was entirely right. I, I want to qualify that because I am very sensitive to that. And we had a balance, you know, you need a balanced scorecard. Yes. We gave rent abatement but we didn't get any abatement in, in terms of our capacity, of our interest by the banks. Uh, we didn't get any concession in terms of rates and taxes and land tax. The government kept coming out and saying, we've all got to share the pain. Well, I couldn't see any sharing of the pain because I got no land tax, I got no stamp duty, I got no interest abatement from the banks. Um, so it really was fairly unbalanced in the way that it was done and I think this is what Sam's referring to. 
And one last one, and I promise it will be the last one, and it's a, a really a question for you both. Obviously, Christine was honoured with a member of the Order of Australia earlier this year in, in support of her services to philanthropic causes. How important is, is that sort of division of the, of the business, giving back to the community? Look, I, I think we've always had a, uh, a, a level of, um, uh, um, I suppose, appreciation at the needs for philanthropy. We, uh, we have recently have sort of become more formal in this uh, and um, we are uh, dedicating a certain percentage of our business to that philanthropic fund. A lot of it was, uh, I suppose, the instigation by my wife who was very strong on this. Um, I mean, she works, she worked very, very hard for St Vincent's Institute, which is the institute that she supports over a number of years and has been responsible for, uh, I suppose, significant uh, financial um, benefits that she's delivered for them. So, you know, it's now over to, we, we have a, a family board, we have a, a, a philanthropic fund that we, we sort of um, put uh, funds into, and then we make the decision as to who we spend the money with or who we give the money to. And Sam and Lisa and David and my wife are all involved and Sam's wife, Carmen, as well. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you both this afternoon. Thanks so much for your time and look forward to seeing the next chapter of the business. Thanks again. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob.